You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Well, when you can't even keep track of what day it is in the real world, you might as well make up a fake one. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 47, the timey-wimey episode. Well, welcome back, listeners. We are excited to talk today about time. A topic that's plaguing us all right now, right. really. Time. What? What is time? Why is time? How is time? <laughs> Who is time? When is time? <laughs> now that doesn't even work. That, that is brains anyway, all the way around, really. We probably should, um, should save the brain-breaking questions for uh, people fresher and with more coffee than we have and start with something a little easier which maybe we could talk about how do you measure time i always like to have like the stupid fun in the world building process of like what's each culture's calendar like and what why did they make it that way like that's a for me that's like just a fun stupid exercise that like doesn't really require a lot of brain power but it like lets me get into the mindset of like, how are each of these different cultures going to approach the idea of like, how do we keep track of things? Do we keep track of things? Do we even care? Mm, we might not, but at least we can do something. And then he's like, okay, so like with the Meridian world, I have two moons. So that right there was a way of being like, do they, which moon do they use to like break things up? Or do they use either? Do they use both in some weirdly complicated way? Those that's that starts sounding like a lot of math, Marshall. Yep, yep. It, yeah, it is a lot of math, actually. <laughs> so, okay, so when I first made like the initial world building stuff of Meridane things back in 1990, <laughs> so I made it that. The year was 360 days, one moon was 30 days, and the other moon was 18 days, which made for really clean math. And then I was just like, that's boring and dumb and, and and too easy. And I didn't want to make things easy on myself, so therefore no, I changed all No, why of would you that. do that? Because <laughs> Listeners, well, because right now Cass and I are both like rubbing our <laughs> temples at the thought of this math. And this is the math that Marshall is saying is easy. And... and Yet we're no. yet we're going deeper, and here we go. The point is, the universe rarely works in like clean, easy cycles that you can easily divide into each other. So, probably don't do that. But at the same time, it it does make for much nicer math. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like this is something y'all addressed in one of your very very early episodes when you were deciding about the cosmology of your invented universes. You know, like. How many suns and moons and stars and things are there? That's very much related to how a, a sentient culture is going to perceive their time. Because mostly, we, we generally, but not always, but generally base divisions of time on something related to heavenly bodies. Because everybody can see them. You look up and it's like, ah, yes, I need now see that the moon is doing a thing. And so I know where in my planting season I am. 
And they don't screw with you the way that climate does. Yeah, it doesn't just wildly change. (laughs) Right. And it doesn't, like, have obnoxious things like, it's a beautiful 60 degrees today, and tomorrow (laughs) it's snowing again. So, haha, Joke's on you if you started planting. Mm -hmm. They are very regular, those heavenly bodies. Yeah, if you know that it's, it's usually safe to start planting after a certain star or constellation has finally risen, then excellent, good. You still might get screwed by a late frost or something, but generally we attach that meaning. And then often we attach sort of mythical meaning to that constellation. Like, ah, yes, that's the planting star. That's that's the great farmer Euroxides or something, you know? Like, that's that's who that guy is. And when we see him, we know it's time to put the seeds in the ground. And I think that that does make a lot of sense. Um, and it can be a fun thing to probably consider, too, of, like, the old choose and presume and what you do and you know, that you don't have to do it that way, even though it is a pretty good constant of um, how we do our time naming management chunking up of the year, that you could have a culture that is more interested in the perception of seasonality rather than like the measurement of seasonality. Or, hey, it feels like spring, therefore it is spring. It is now the season that we call scorched earth season that means that it is very hot and it will remain this season until it is no longer this hot and then we will call it something else we have the season of monsoons because there were monsoons once the monsoon stopped it is no longer the season of monsoons and (laughs) it has ended and it doesn't matter how long it actually lasted it is what it is right that then goes to culture of like how important is that kind of like date keeping and record keeping even to them in the first place like do they care beyond like well it's the wet season or the dry season or do they want very specific dates so they can keep very specific records because that's just the sort of people they are are they that anal and therefore will somebody will create a very detailed calendar and make sure that it's right Well, there's, like you're subtweeting least... the ancient Egyptians right now. <laughs> <laughs> so you, there's at least one person like that in every culture, but will the whole culture get there? Will they all yes. go along with it? Yes. And yes, ancient <laughs> no, Egypt. <laughs> it's, it's what I, I mean, it's one of the things I love because, I mean, you can tell how their seasons start by not necessarily celestial, but it's by flood and recession and, and harvest and, and things like that. It's all based on when the Nile floods, but they then link their numerical calendar to that because they're sort of the first ones that come up with a 360 day plus some extra days that we throw in because took humanity a long time to sort of sort that one out um (laughs) have we even really figured it out completely yeah (laughs) but so they essentially had three seasons of four months each as opposed to what our sort of english derived brains think of as four seasons of three months each but then it could become politically interesting because if that flood didn't arrive when it was supposed to on the day that, you know, floods are supposed to start, the pharaohs could get in really big trouble because it was like, oh no, the gods have withdrawn their favor if, if the floods didn't arrive on time. Dangerous thing to link your political power to forces of nature that may or may not show up. <laughs> or to capricious gods, either one. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I love that that detail of even just the simple shift of it's divided into three instead of divided into four. Like if you take a year and think about seasonality, 
we really do have this like stamped on our brains and it's probably from all of those like children's books that we consumed as we young things with four seasons and there is spring, summer, autumn and winter. And that's not the way it has to go. And it's not the way it goes in many other parts of the world. Um, and so you can think about, you know, do you have like the flood season? Do you have instead a wet and dry season? Do you have um, even something more similar to what we actually experience in many parts of the world, which is not clean cut for seasons, but you have these like mini seasonlets, like early spring is not really like spring in the children's books at all. It's like brown and muddy and windy and still kind of cold and just generally bleak looking outside. But it's not really winter anymore either because it's not really like snowy or frigid or icing over. So it's like, what is it? What do we call this? Can we just start calling this mud season? Can we add like a fifth season to our understanding of this is mud season? <laughs> it comes after winter and before spring. Back when I was world building something else and I like wanted to like, I would being perverse, I just like, I just want to do something different with my calendar. So I did research and found about a lot of places have a six season calendar and it was like, oh yeah, that's, that's what I want to play with. So I would break the calendar up into like six like 60-ish day long seasons. I can never like some part of my brain always wants the year to be around 360 days even though that's certainly not like necessary same thing with like the day is gonna be about 24 hours but again that's just me that's just the part of my brain that's just like no just keep it that just keep it that don't you know <laughs> don't make your like you're already making your life hard don't make it like the day also like weird as well as the year is like 540 days or something bizarre like that because there's that Im- <laughs> there's solid that, science behind that though that like oh yeah the the at least when it comes to humans but also just general growth cycles years need to be around a certain time days need to be around a certain time unless your culture has advanced technology to you know balance that out um it's one of the things they think about when they look for planets that might have life on them is that they have to have fall within a certain range in that sort of way well and even right i'm and i do not know enough about this to comment in any great detail but the idea of there being you know if you're too close to the sun you roast to death if you're too far away you freeze to death so there has to be this you know you're in the goldilocks zone that's just right and there's probably a range of how you know long time is going to work there but hey even adding a few you know like a week or two is going to screw with your 360 day cycle. So, Right. You could really, really masochist yourself by like starting your cosmology by having your planet be further away or closer. And so the year is much longer, much shorter. And then also it rotates at a, at a long, faster or slower speed. So the day is shorter or longer. And then like do all your evolution and ecology. But why? Okay. <laughs> You're a masochist, and thus you're listening to this show. But also, even then, that's that's some like next level stuff beyond even our bullshit. <laughs> it's it's the thing where I would say pick one of those variables to be masochistic about, make that your intriguing thing, and don't try to pile on too many because then you're just doing lots of physics rather than writing your book, and that's going to trip you up. It would me anyway. 
some listener out there is like, I could do all that. And it's, it's like, I don't even have to start with evolution of animals in the same way. What? Why do I need mammals and reptiles? I can have totally different things. <laughs> and yes, you can, listeners. But do you really want to? And if so, good. We're happy for you. Stay over there. <laughs> but the six season, to go back, the six season calendar I, of having six seasons of about 60-ish days, that, that was a fun, different thing for me to play with. But it is very common in other parts of the world, especially in in South Asia. I think it's very common to break the season into into six, break the year into six seasons. Just thinking about how our, you know, our year, we think of it as 365 days, except it isn't. It's that and a bit, <laughs> which has been messing calendars up forever. Even, you know, the Julian calendar got it closer to right, but then still needed reform. But it's one of my favorite things about the old Roman calendar is that before they figured out that anabit part, the calendar kept getting out of sync with the seasons. Because if you didn't insert intercalary days when you were supposed to, which sometimes they just forgot, or there was a civil war and they were distracted, or some pontifex deliberately didn't. He was like, no, I'm just not doing it this year. And then suddenly you're celebrating your, your festivals at completely the wrong time. Which, when that's tied to your religion, can start to get very confusing. Like, I can't honor the god of the harvest if we haven't planted things yet. <laughs> like, this is going to mess up everything. And, and so they had to make that change. And so, yeah, figuring out that sort of thing. It can be fun to play with. I, I desperately wanted to find a way to work that into the oven cycle. And I just couldn't. There was not a good enough reason to include that detail about the intercalary months and getting the seasons out of track but I wanted to. <laughs> this is so weird. I just love it. Now, I will say, if you do want to do that and you don't have the math or just don't want to do the math, and I don't blame you, there are there are some tools out there in the interwebs that you can look up that will, like, help you, will do the math for you so then you can just, like, plug in weird numbers. Because I think one of the things that, that bothered me when I first did that thing with you know just 360 days and 30 days and 18 days was the cleanness of it was just too unreal and because as you say it's like it's a messy thing it's gonna be 365 days and a smidgen more just because you know because the world is a messy place and i i, I would rather embrace that messiness and have to do the math well and i love that our our long-term solution for this is just add an extra day every few years like that's the least elegant solution ever but it works like not all of your time solutions have to be like beautifully worked out elegant solutions you can have things like well it's been a few years let's add a day bonus day there you go but what i also love from a cultural perspective is that only works if everyone agrees to it at least within a certain culture and I think that becomes an interesting thing of like, you know, is this all just an intellectual exercise we're playing with or does it matter for some reason to the book? Well, and I think that that gets that question of what does a culture even need time for? Like yeah. we've been talking about, you know, the needs of agrarian cultures for knowing when to plant. You have herding cultures that need to know when to move herds from one pasture to another, depending, you know, when it's safe to go up to the mountains and it's not going to snow and, you know, kill your whole herd. But, you know, is there a reason for you to have minutes and seconds? Is there a reason for you to have years? 
Like, does it, does you actually have to measure how many years it's been since something happened? Like, maybe you do, and maybe you don't. I have to constantly remind myself not to use minutes or seconds in, in either the oven cycle or the other thing I'm working on, which is also before that concept matters. Before clockwork, you really don't have a concept of a unit of time shorter than about a quarter of an hour. Like, people had hours before that, and you could sort of divide it up. But unless you're trying to run trains or have really complex meeting schedules, <laughs> you don't really need it to be defined that tightly. But those words are so ingrained in our language. Like, hold on a minute. It's like, wait a minute. But if they don't... Give me a second. If they don't have a minute. Moment. Moment. I'm going to use that <laughs> word a lot to avoid these time terms that wouldn't really be relevant to them. I I did so much of that with velocity because there it was like keeping track of time. And I like, I probably did too much work in creating, instead of using hours and minutes, using uh, sweeps and swipes, which I probably, I don't know how much that just made people go like, what? the fuck is he even talking about or if they just figured it out and ran with it but that was definitely i just ran i found it easy to run with i was just like oh okay i get it that, that seems reasonable sure but i always i always worry about when you do something like that if that's gonna be like it in and of itself will probably not be too hard for your reader to figure out but will that be like that last straw of weirdness is just like no i like like I, I I was there with the dragons and I was there with with the magic that works only with aluminum, but then you did a weird time <laughs> thing and I'm out. <laughs> well, and it's one of those things too that you know you can probably show quite a bit about how a culture measures time and uses time by just what they're doing in their daily lives. Like if someone puts a loaf of bread in the oven, are they setting a timer or are they like checking their watch? Or do they just like know what it looks like when it's done and they take it out? Like, how many things that we go through our daily lives, timing them, are there actually other ways of doing that chore? Like, for example, my, my um, husband and I have been boiling um, sap for maple syrup, which there's like a precise temperature that you have to measure to, um, which is the same also with like jams and jellies. And so he's like measuring this like, precise temperature and, and he's like, it's like not quite coming out right. And I'm like, well, why don't you just do it till it looks right? Cause that's how I make jam. And you're supposed to like, you know, if you read the instructions, making jam is like boil to this temperature and then boil for this many minutes. And I'm like, eh, it's sheeting off my spoon. I think I'm good. Cause I apparently have the soul of a, 1900s grandma somewhere within me and that's just how I do things but it's like you you don't actually need these measurement rules for a lot of the things that you use them for I'm gonna say I almost never set a timer for anything I put in the oven I go almost entirely on sense of smell like you know <laughs> like yeah that's done okay <laughs> which is a great plan until you like forget the oh something in the oven and <laughs> until you yeah and then and then that's why I set se timers. <laughs> then your sense of smell tells you, you burnt this. <laughs> you screwed up. <laughs> it's a great tool. I, I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> also, because I found, much like the thing with the temperature, I found with a lot of cooking things, like the times they give you are just, they're just lies. 
They, yeah. they, they, are, they are not the time that it's going to take. <laughs> or like they're very broad suggestions. Like. <laughs> Leave it in there for 15 to 75 minutes. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and if you, if you have an oven that's the devil and has weird cold spots or suddenly just, you know, like not every appliance works the same way. So. Yeah. These cookies are done when they look the way I know they're supposed to look. Right. And if you think about the way that many, you know, cooking and other, you know, things worked in the past, you didn't have precise appliances anyway. You had, you know, here's this oven that's being fueled on coals and it's pretty stable, but not exactly measured to a specific temperature. So just the idea of like, you're going to be fudging your time measurements pretty much all the time. When does a culture need to have precise time? Because like... We didn't have precise time so until, again, we had trains and like every town was like, it's, you know, 8.06 here, but it's 8.12 over in Sheboygan. And <laughs> and you had to like be like, OK, no, everybody's going to be on the same damn time because we're trying to get the train from point A to point B and have people know when the train's going to be there. And not crash into other like, trains. And not crash into really other trains. really helpful. <laughs> crucial element of that. But like at what point? does your culture need that like is it at a point of industrialization where people from who are going to be far apart need something with that level of precision like or like could your magic system require more absolute precise timing i mean yeah if you've got a magic system that like if you hold the wand a few seconds too long, you get, you know, an elephant instead of the llama that you were going for, or you boil your eye of newt just like a minute over what it needs to be and the whole thing just blows up. Like, you're probably going to develop some pretty precise timing um, to avoid that happening. <laughs> to do the ritual, this, the moon has to be exactly here, that star has to be exactly there, this planet has to be exactly there. You, you might want a clock to, to work all that yeah, out. Yeah, especially because, so. like, you know what? You can do the ritual on a nice clear night, but it has to happen every night. And if it's cloudy, you're screwed. <laughs> so you better have really good charts good and clocks. I feel like it's, it's something that comes up a lot in science fiction when you're traveling between planets and you're, or you're in spacecraft. And at that point, days and years are both sort of not entirely meaningless, but so variable that the system has to be, once again, has to be agreed upon by everyone. Like, what is a standard year as opposed to, you know, the year on my home planet? And then why does that matter? Like, figuring out someone's age. How old are you if you've lived most of your life on a spaceship? You haven't gone around a sun a certain amount of times. And so how does that factor into how you perceive yourself if that culture still has the kinds of, of you know, landmark moments in, in your phases of life, like we talked about a few episodes back? How do you measure that if you are detached somehow from, from the natural revolutions of, of a planet around the sun? Well, even just the idea of it having to have some standard that if you, you know, apply a standard that sort of creates something artificial, doesn't it? Like, if you're on a spaceship or if you are suddenly working eight-hour days in a textile factory instead of working in farm fields, either one, it's creating this, like, artificial designation of what time is that doesn't 
actually exist, but suddenly we have a work day in a factory, or suddenly we have a year on a spaceship that has nothing to do with the actual like world around it, but we've like applied it. And now it's like a systemic thing that's standard and applied to how everyone is perceiving how they're measuring things. I can think of like a lot of science fiction because so on Mars, the, the day on Mars is 24 hours and like 37 minutes or something like that. Like it's actually really close to what the, what the day on earth is. So I've seen a lot of like of what they do to adjust for that. Like, do you just have, you know, as do your clocks just at midnight, then just stop for 37 minutes and then start again like those that every day that 37 minutes doesn't count or is this weird like extra sub hour or like, like there's a lot of weird choices you can make but they're still based around the idea of just let's keep the idea of the 24-hour day just to make life easier for people back home on earth where it is a 24-hour day Hey, I am not going to complain if someday I get sent to some Martian colony and I just get a bonus 37 minutes that I get to take a nap or something. <laughs> Fine with that. <laughs> that was one of my favorite little bits of world building they did on Deep Space Nine because the station was at Bajor and Bajor had a 26-hour day, though what's an hour on Bajor to them? Who knows? Because they're alien but i loved how they built that into all the language all the time like when like you were doing something like i need this report in 48 hours they would be they would make it 52 hours or 78 like they would do like they would do the sort of things that we would use those time units of like 24 hours or 48 hours or 72 hours and scope that out to what a 26 hour day would work and i always loved just the way they made that sound totally natural coming out of people's mouths even though you'd be like, wait a second, why 52 hours? Oh, that's two days. Okay. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting too, Rowan, what you said about linking it to work, to shifts as well. You know, they talk about that on DS9 too. You sometimes need hours when it's like, okay, how much time are you paying me for? How much of my time am I being compensated for? I need to know that down to the minute. <laughs> right. To make sure I'm getting my dues. Or... The other perspective is to make sure you're here for all of those minutes that I'm paying you for. It's, you know, time can be a function of capitalism in a lot of ways. <laughs> well, yeah, if you're paying for time and not paying for a product, you know, you're not taking the turnips to market and selling them. You are being paid to harvest the turnips that someone else is going to take to market. Suddenly the whole game changes and time becomes important in a way that it was not before. And how much does in your world does a schedule need to be kept either for work or for meetings or classes or whatever else is making the civilization run. How much, how much, how much detail do they need and why do they need that much detail? Right. Well, and if, you know, if we think about precision on measuring things like minutes and seconds and when that's required and when it's really not, there's also the other end of the spectrum of measuring years. And like, do you, do you know how old you are? Do you know how many years it's been since that event that happened that everyone remembers? Like, oh, there was a fire in the city that year. Well, yeah, I don't remember when that was. My kid was little. I don't, you know. Or do you have a system that is very precise in, in keeping track of years and having, you know, not just a calendar of a year, but having a record of decades and centuries and all the way back? 
And when you're doing that, like if you have, if you have your civilization have a calendar, whatever year it is in that calendar, like what determined what year that is? Like why is it, why is it twelve fifteen and not nineteen seventy six or something like that? Like what was the decision made and made by who to like this is we're starting the calendar today to this is year one and we'll work it out from there like how did how did that come about and why was that decision made and i i always i always make a point of figuring out what the where the calendar starts and why it's sort of that way or if i'm doing weird things where it's like it's a dynastic calendar where it's like every time who was oh it was alex who had this completely screwed up method with their with their account where it was every time a new ruler takes over the calendar like restarts as the dynasty to that ruler but it then restarts based on when they were born rather than when they took power like they made it especially difficult on purpose like just to like (laughs) be a dick to their culture (laughs) so it was like it might be like year 75 of, you know, King whoever, whoever, and then King whoever dies in the next one. And then all of a sudden it's year 26 of the next King and retroactively the last 25 years get renamed. Yeah. And then when, when you have something that right. complicated, <laughs> I do love coming up with systems. Yeah. I do love coming up with weird stuff to like be complicated just for the sake of being complicated because humans can just be dicks to other humans about how they come up so especially with things like how are we naming the calendar how are we naming the era the dinosaur all that because people will get really fucking egotistical about it and be like we're gonna name all this after me because i'm in charge now and i'm gonna minimize the people ahead of me <laughs> and that's how it's gonna go now looking at you augustus <laughs> looking at you well and you know, it's interesting, too, because you have to apply that question of like, so how does how you understand, record and talk about history play into how you understand time and vice versa? Like if you have moved from a culture of like we have an oral history to know we are writing all this shit down, suddenly having like numerical years becomes a thing that it's like very important to have the like archive of yes in year 37 this thing happened slide it onto the shelf Susanna Clark's newest book Piranesi does something fascinating with that because the main character who's who you're experiencing the story through has become detached almost entirely from from external impetus and so he is tracking time by things like that and it's sort of implied that you know his years aren't the same length always he's having trouble sometimes have how many days has it been but he names the years like the year there was a bird in this particular hall because that was a memorable <laughs> occasion for him and and it's 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 very strange and fascinating it's a deeply weird book that i enjoyed um but it plays around with that perception it's so much about the perception of time and and space and some other things how it can warp and how it can, you know, not be what you expect. To segue from that into then, so what do you name things? Because I think we just got I hate this question. This. <laughs> but it is, it is like the worst question, but it is, I think it is such a fundamental question of like, I mean, Tolkien just, just, he just fucking cheated. He just was like, 
Yep. January, February, March, April. Like, why is I'm there a so- March? Why is there a March? There's no Mars. Why do you have a March? I don't understand. Well, you see, in Middle Earth, it's actually the month in which one takes long walks or uh. marches. Yeah, yeah. That was in an appendix somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> if you're going to, like, say, like, okay, I have this. I mean, to a degree, we're always cheating. It's like, you know, we're translating in, into English. And, you know, they're not really using you know, the same royalty structure as medieval europe but like sure okay we'll 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 run with that but at the same time i always feel like if you're if you just say january february march nothing throws me out of your secondary world faster than that and yeah i agree and and i don't think everyone works like that but my brain does because i'm immediately like how do you have a thursday you don't have thor you don't (laughs) exactly but how do you have a thursday and it's driving me up the wall currently as I think about my my non-oven project that I'm still sort of messing around with. It's like, okay, do I name the days of the week? It's a sophisticated enough culture where, like, what day of the week it is matters. Do I name them? And then I have to teach the reader what those are and what they mean and what order they go in. And that could be a hurdle. Or do I just try to avoid ever saying a day of the week and just always be like, the day after tomorrow? <laughs> well, and in three days' time. And considering uh-huh. that you can have cultures in which the days of the week don't matter as much. So, like, if you don't have a culture with a weekend, you know, if you have, what's a weekend anyway? What is a weekend? weekend. That if you if you have that, what is a week? (laughs) You know, then you can in a lot of ways get away with things like the day after tomorrow or in three days, if your weeks don't have like benchmark structure to them. That there is a Sunday that everyone goes to church, or there is a Friday that everyone goes to worship, or there is a Wednesday that for some reason is the wash day and everyone does this. I don't know. But if you don't have that, I mean, you can certainly get away with these days don't actually matter. And it's just about the fact that they follow one after the other. There is definitely a difference between does my culture have this kind of differentiation of day? Does it have a week? What does a week mean anyway? Is it seven days? Why is it seven days? And things like that. Or can you sort of just take it as read that yes, that exists, but like avoid using it as much as possible because all you will do is just confuse things by like, even though in my calendar, I totally have like all the months and all the days of the week and a week is seven days. And I have some deep in the lore reason why it is seven days and we don't have, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's it, This is one of the big iceberg things I think about world building yeah. is, is, is finding that point where maybe you need to know for your own mental sanity but does your reader need to know or do you just want them to know and where is that balancing point right and i think that your point too Cass, about you know if you're going to have these days named or these months named and it is important for your reader to know what they are and which ones follow which then you do have to teach them and the on-ramp becomes an on-ramp instead of just continuing on. There's always the option of the appendix, but if it's important to the story, you don't want to drag your reader out of the story for too long to send them scuttling to the appendix to figure out what's going on. Like, you you want this to be accessible. And so, you know, how to make things accessible. I think, so, 
this is just my stupid opinion. I think months are a lot easier for people to swallow than days of the week in terms of like I think like if you just have somebody who's like what day is it well it's it's Maritam the fourth they're just gonna be like okay that's the name of a month and they'll move on I think that's one of those things that I we worry about do we have to explain this more than the audience actually gets freaked out by it especially if you do it in a natural and non- confusing way like if you're throwing it in there all of a sudden where there is a schedule being kept and you're throwing all these terms at a reader that's very different than kind of subtly weaving these words into ordinary dialogue or ordinary observations and when you're conveying something like the month you have other apparatus around it that's going to tell the reader what that means you know what that means for the season they're going to infer certain things based on what you're describing about the weather or what people are wearing whereas with days of the week A, those come around more quickly. So if your book takes place over more than a couple of days, you sort of have to get that set into their heads, what order they come in. But there's less context as well, I think, between, you know, what one day of the week means and another day of the week, as opposed to one month to another month. You know, what really makes a Tuesday different from a Wednesday? All that cultural baggage of... Uh, must be a case of the Mondays. Thank God it's Friday. You know, yeah. Wednesday is hump day. Sunday means you can't buy alcohol for some reason. <laughs> so maybe like that's all- a way in. You know, it can be like, oh, thank God it's Ron's day. Like, <laughs> and a reader might be like, oh, okay, I guess that's the end of their work week. I don't I, know. I, like, I get it. I mean, I think, and, and you can think about it too. I mean, a lot of a lot of our days of the week, as well as months, have those mythical. Um, connotations but that's not true of every culture you know you have days of the week in some cultures that are named things like basically market day so you can work into if it's especially if it's you know in any way related to your story days of the week that are set as being for particular activities or you know whatever and if you want to like give them all weird names that are or different names, you can do you can have a little fun with the idea of like giving each day of the week like like the task that's that day. Like there's the market day and there's the washing day, and then sort of linguistically drift each one to then become like just a word on its own that sort of lost its derivation over the course of time. You could even do that using whatever conlang bullshit you've done and name each day just with in the book that i have coming out at the end of this year which is in the world of meridane but on the other side of the world and my main character is stuck in this other city on the other side of the world just having to make her way figuring things out and when she finally and i do have a bit where she realizes what the calendar means like how it works and she's like oh it's just Day one, day two, day three, but in their language. Okay, the poetry's gone now. But. <laughs> well, and like, there's that old, you know, I, I it's probably in like Little House in the Prairie or something that's, you know, a little rhyme about wash on Mondays, iron on Tuesdays, bake on Wednesdays or whatever it is. And, you know, if to your character, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday don't matter, but wash, iron, bake, mend do you can always have them referring to things in terms of what their world looks like. Like, oh, t- yeah. today's wash day. Today's market day. Even if those aren't the real 
terms in their world, they might refer to that with with friends, family, neighbors, whatever, like, hey, I'll see you next market day. And, and I think, yeah, if you can root it in root it in character, root it in story and have it be things that just feel organic. Don't ask your reader to like, like do a test on the calendar at the, <laughs> at the end, then I think you're going to be fine. Yep. It should not feel like a freshman year language course. <laughs> yes, yeah, so yeah. we never advocate quizzing your readers. But sometimes you just want that information out there and you just say, fuck it, I'm writing an appendix and put it in there. Which then I did, I did do that and then realized, oh, this means I, does this mean I have to put an appendix in all the books? Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and then have to like come up with an excuse of like, okay, what's, what's a thematically correct appendix for, for, for this book? Yeah, see, you sound like you're upset, but I don't think it's true. I'm really I, not. No. I think you're perfectly <laughs> content with the situation. The Yes, I love I love adding appendices. <laughs> then, therefore, you're not stopping your narrative to like tell people bullshit that they don't want to know in the middle of the fight scene, and the people who want to read the appendix will read the appendix. Yes, it's it's the always leave your reader wanting a little bit more, and then give them a little bit more. <laughs> give them a little bit more. Give them the history of higher education and and how a certain sports game is played. So we talked a little bit about time and magic and how they might interact in terms of measuring time, but I think there are a lot of other ways like how time and magic could intertwine and how time and um, sci-fi intertwine and we hit some of those too. But I just think they're kind of fun to like play with. And I think that one thing that I don't, I mean, there's been some playing with it, but I'd love to see more is what if magic was actually screwing with the perception of time? Like it's not changing the time itself, but it's acting upon people to change a perception of time. Like if Sleeping Beauty's castle wasn't actually asleep, but it's just in a time bubble (laughs) where everything appears slowed in some way. Or a time loop story, which occurs in fantasy as well as Mm -hmm. scientific because you're reliving the same moment does, does everybody have free will within the time loop why why is time loop like these are these are these are great things to play with like we were joking at the beginning of the thing when when Cass said who is time but in a fantasy setting that's a valid question who is time is a very valid question because i mean that can be like time can be personified it can i mean can be an old man with beard and hourglass or it can be whatever because it can be there can be a god of time and we we just talked about cultures perceiving time differently and measuring time differently you can have more than one time battling it out in your story and if time can be fluid in your story what happens when it gets changed around like if Okay, if you have time travel, what are your time travel rules? Like, do you have a thing where it's like you go back and change a thing and it's changed? Do you have like whole sets of parallel timelines? And I will fully admit I was kind of confused in reading This Is How You Lose the Time War. But it certainly implied that they were like futzing with things in the past to like change the probable outcomes of different potential futures that they both came from and like that just saying that sentence made my brain scream just a little bit (laughs) well it's basically are you on the back to the future model or are you using the novikov self-consistency principle which says you know whatever you do in the past you've already done and so the the closed loop theory 
Or are you spawning alternate universes, as is the Marvel Cinematic Universe take on it, that you never actually change the past or the future. You just spawn a whole new universe because that <laughs> makes things simpler. <laughs> then you don't have to worry that you change the past because it's it's not your past anymore. I mean, the closed loop is much easier. What is? I remember with this stupid movie I watched many, many times in my youth. But it was with this guy who accidentally time travels back to the Old West with his motorcycle because... <laughs> that's what happens um, but like at one point he tells the story of the necklace he's wearing that his great-grandmother took from his great-grandfather right before he left and you know and she never saw him again and then at the end of the movie the woman he meets and hooks up with takes his necklace just as he's about to just as he jumps back to the future so it's a closed loop where he was his own great-grandfather and marinate on that for a little bit <laughs> That is so upsetting. <laughs> exactly. Was this was this a was this a movie that like this was a real movie? I'm I'm, this was a real I'm upset. Movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, time's easy to break, I feel like. It's one of those things that don't poke it is, too hard. Yeah. Is time easy to break or does is time you know does time like bounce back and find a way? Like is it which which rule are you working with and how does that work within and how do you make how do you decide on a consistent rule and use that throughout your world and your story that is true because you know doctor who has its theory of fixed points in time that certain things are fixed points or that i absolutely um, cannot change unless yes, i decide to change them. except for cheap <laughs> um and then in terry pratchett in in one of his books there's a a really well put because it's Terry Pratchett section about how, you know, if you change a little thing, it's not actually going to change the whole universe. It's not going to spawn a whole alternate universe. Only occasionally will an event be significant enough to send events careening down a different leg of the trousers of time. And I've always enjoyed that metaphor, the trousers of time. That's good. I like that. I can, sw I can swing with that one. Or does, does the tiny thing have massive, massive changes, which, the classic is the, is the Ray Bradbury story, the, the Sound of Thunder, in which people travel back in time to shoot dying dinosaurs just because apparently that's what you do when you invent time travel. Now I'm upset. <laughs> <laughs> Who would do like, that? Why would you Marshall, do that? Why, you, you, why are these examples <laughs> today? What, are you hurting? Are you okay? <laughs> I'm not okay. You're in quarantine. <laughs> But, like, the idea was, like, it was just for, like, rich assholes who wanted to, like, say, I hunted a dinosaur, but they would, like, have this, like, floating path that you had to stay on, and you only, but you, they, like, picked a dinosaur that was, like, gonna die in five minutes anyway, so it was, like, it was just to, like, get your asshole thrills of, I shot a dinosaur, but then the one guy, like, jumps off the path for reasons, and then they're, like, fuck, get back and got on the eaten. path. And got eaten? No, he, he didn't get eaten, but he <gasps> stepped on a butterfly. And then when they came back to the future, everything had changed because he stepped on a butterfly. But, like, changed in, like, weirdly massive ways, but at the same time, not enough massive. Like, it was, for me, it always felt like just the wrong amount of change. <laughs> the other guy won the election and signs were spelled differently. Like, and that was it. it was like, huh. in, I feel like it in, should either really? be. Instead of, like... And so birds never evolved. 
Like, yeah. yeah. Like, like, that I seems feel more like reasonable. Like, or like wheat. Been... Like wheat never evolved because this one <laughs> yeah. butterfly was the only pollinator that would have carried something forward. Like that yeah. makes more sense to me than that that butterfly <laughs> cared about a politician four billion years later. Yeah. It was, but, it's, it's a weird, like, it's an interesting thought exercise story in general of like, of how a simple change can, could spiral out of control. But I, I do think... It, w- it had flaws. As so much, <laughs> as so much 50s science fiction classics yes. had flaws. But you know, it, it, <laughs> it made us think about a thing, and that's. Made us we think th- about thank it for that. You know, one book that I, um, hmm. I love for just like, let's think about time is um, this slim little book called Einstein's Dreams, that it's like imagining Einstein brainstorming while he's thinking up the theory of relativity. But it's like there's sweet little vignettes about like how would people feel and live their lives if time worked this way or that way or another way. And like one of them was what if time moved more slowly the higher up you got, like the higher elevation, like what would society look like? You'd have people clamoring to live at the tops of mountains. And one of them was what would... um time look like if um everyone knew the day the world would end and it was it's an interesting little book i I do like concepts of like whether you are actually traveling to the past if you were actually you know moving yourself back and being able to influence it or are you just seeing the past sometimes or seeing the future i think prophecy is an interesting component to the whole time question that that can be something to play with especially if we're talking about magic or really you know um advanced technology in certain ways how does that influence how you think of time how you interact with it what you try to change and is it changeable is prophecy then changeable is a prophet somebody who is somehow seeing the future they're seeing potential futures or are they unstuck in time in some way and are they from the future but somehow able to write into the past well something i play with with um, time as one of the magical elements in the Oven cycle is that it is people who the magic sort of gives them glimpses forward or back often. It's not the only way time magic manifests, but for the ones who do have prophecy, but some of them have more refined control than others. Some of them see really specific visions, and for some it's much more you know, symbolic, and they have to figure out what this means. Um, but what what I realized when I was thinking about it is that all of the other elements in my magical system have an opposite. They have an inimical element, you know, fire and water, earth and air, light and shadow. Um, but time doesn't. What's the opposite of time? Because even stillness is itself sort of a measure of time happening. And so I just thought that was a philosophical thing that was like, hmm, interesting. Not quite sure what to do with that. Put a pin in it. Come back to it later someday, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, the opposite of time is kind of the most extreme nothingness that there is, and that's a very uncomfortable thought. I know, we don't want to think about that. (laughs) See, now I'm thinking of that, the Next Generation finale, where, like, the whole thing starts with the eruption of anti-time. Like, what is anti-time? I don't know, but... It's going to erupt if it if it shows up, and that's not going to be good for anybody. There's so many good Star Trek episodes about time. There's just... Well, and then when you think about a lot of, a lot of episodic sci-fi, does fun things narratively with time. 
that if you're going to have things like time loops or you're having time running differently in two different places, like time has slowed way down in one place and is running normally in another, like you can do interesting narrative things with that. You know, I think that it could be kind of fun to try a story in which time has slowed way down in one place for some magical reason or because of, you like, you know, timey, wimey, black hole weirdness or something. And then it's sped up somewhere else. And yet they're both intertwined in some way. It could be kind of a fun short story. I don't think I'd want to do a novel length story <laughs> trying to keep up with that. But you know, you can, you can, because of the fact that most of our narratives are so time-based, play a little bit with time and you can really have a fun twist to a traditional narrative. And, and not just sci-fi, but, you know, fantasy has very often the idea that stepping into another world is stepping into a place where time works differently. You know, whether it's in Fae and you think you're there for two hours and you come out and it's been two years, um... Or Narnia, where it's sort of the other way around, where you think you've been there 30 years and you've been there 30 minutes. Like, you can, that can you be can an interesting element. Tea with Mr. Tumnus as long as you want, and you come back out the same time that you went in. How much of that do you just put to the rule of whimsy, and how much of that do you, you like, actually, like, sit down and do the math of, like, what's the, what's the, rate, of, what's the rate of time passing yeah. in this world compared to the real world? compared to the other world i shouldn't it, say the real world but like is it a fixed rate it, of change or is it completely chaotic and, and variable or or is there no actual rate of change at all and it's simply whatever you know like do you just go through the portal and you come back out the same moment that you left it like there has been no change there's some kind of stop to it the 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 time of the two worlds are independent of one another. It's just the portal is fixed one way or another. Right. Yeah. Though Narnia does seem to just be going faster because it goes it goes from creation to destruction from like 1887 to 1954. So <laughs> it's moving pretty quickly. It, it goes, it's moving pretty quickly. But who knows? It could like you can. That can be another thing. Like with like, if you have portal magic, does does the time do time portals exist too and are they fixed points in time rather than fixed points in space or how does that work i'm now thinking of the movie time bandits where they have the map of all the portals and you know and it would take you to to the exact point in time or but because it was just the map of all the little mishaps and holes in the universe that were got screwed up and hadn't quite fixed things yet <laughs> and if you want to get really broad on the concepts of time, what you mentioned in Narnia, creation and destruction. I mean, you can think about those in terms of, you know, how do you define beginnings and ends of time in your world? Are they definable in that way? Um, because in a fantasy world, you can play with concepts like where did it come from and when is it going to end and how and is that part of how you understand time functioning? Like if you have a if you have a whole creation mythos where your gods really appear as real things who start the world, like do they do you have a god of time who snaps their fingers and then time starts to starts to starts to roll or what have you? Like these are these are choices you can make. You can do all sorts of weird, messed up things. Give yourself as much of a headache as you desire. 
Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on April 14th, where Marina Lostetter will be joining us to talk about forgotten histories and lost artifacts. After all, you can't have a great and ancient power lost to time if everyone remembers where they left it. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. I think that we are just that level of class. We're classy as fuck is what we are. We so. are. <laughs> <laughs>